Paul concluded the previous passage that we looked at last week that he was confident that he would come to them again. And though Paul comforts the Philippians with the thought that he is confident with this assurance, we know that whether or not he was able to go to Philippi um, and return there, we, do, we don't know if that actually happened. And it turns out that his being able to return to Philippi was not the point to begin with. Uh, he doesn't believe without question that he is going to be released from uh, arrest and he's going to be able to return to Philippi. Because if he did, the passage actually wouldn't make sense what Paul is saying. Uh, it's already possible in Paul's mind that he's not going to be able to go to Philippi. And our first word in our passage today begins with only. Um, or another way in which it could be translated is regardless. Only or regardless what? Well, whether he comes or not. This work of confidence is not learning how to control and to manage the future. The work is something that is completely different. He's not saying, or he is saying, whatever happens, only, right? This one thing, this single thing. And he adds a bit later, whether I come to you or am absent. Right? The confidence is not founded upon merely just being able to have or have the assurance of good circumstances. And I, I don't think a lack of confidence um, is, is merely founded on the fact that you know, there are bad circumstances that are coming. Near to Paul's point is this idea how in the face of persecution, in the face of being in prison, um, for the Philippians, of hearing about all of this news, about hearing about the serious illness of a loved one, whom we haven't been introduced yet in Paul's letter, but who's going to be introduced a little bit later, and the news of two friends who can no longer see eye to eye, there's actually conflict that's going on in the Philippian church, which we haven't gotten to yet, right? In the midst of all of that, this trouble, people in prison, people being persecuted, um, the fears of what it is that could be, how, how is it that you could be confident and live confidently in those circumstances? So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and we're going to be looking at, in the midst of those moments, what do you need to keep your focus on, right? What are you looking at? Two, what will make it worth it? Paul says, right, this will make it worth it if you do this. And then three, how do we understand it? And by that, I mean, how is it that we know what these ad the adversity or the difficulty means? And before Diane Zabrowski comes forward to read our passage, let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, uh, you've got our attention. Um, we, we don't live very confidently, um, oftentimes, especially when we're faced with circumstances about the future, um, things that are things that could come up, things that we can imagine. All those things, they, they rush at us in the middle of the night. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit um, to help us to see um, the beauty of the gospel, of the good news, especially of the one um, who came seeking us and who holds us. Um, and in doing that, Lord, we will give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thank you, Diane. All right, so firstly, what do you need to keep your focus on? If you're gonna, if some, if you're playing baseball or softball, and somebody's throwing a ball at you, um, and you know you're the batter, um, what do you need to do? Think about the home run that you're gonna hit. Keep your eye on the ball, right? Um, if you're gonna keep your car in between the lines on the highway, where do you need to keep your eyes? On your phone? Texting somebody? No, on the road. Paul tells the Philippians that if they're going to have confidence, they need to know what it is that they're looking at and aiming for um, so that their confidence won't be shaken by circumstances. They need to know, right, what to keep their eye on. And the target that they are to keep their eye on um, is found in one great word, um, worthy. It's in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right? The principal truth here becomes, this, this principal truth becomes the weighty um, fulcrum or hinge point for the whole gospel or for the whole letter of Philippians. Um, it measures the rest of the letter and it explains all of Paul's exhortations and his illustrations. Worthy is a heavy word. For some, right, for some of us, this idea of being worthy uh, it, it pokes a beast inside of us. Um, and the beast is um, the fear of the shame of our unworthiness. It evokes memories of things that have been said to us in the past. Like when uh, my sixth grade football, traveling football coach stood over me and looked down at me and said, Edwards, you're not worth a nickel. That'll make an impression, won't it, right? It invokes those sorts of memories, right? You may find yourself afraid of the word worthy, but Paul here says that it's the one thing for you to keep your eye on. The word that's translated worthy here um, is for the Philippians a picture word. It's the word axios, and it refers to the pivot point on a balance scale, to live in a manner worthy is not so much to live in a manner that earns its worth, but it is to live in accord with its worth. It is to live a life that fits with its worth, that fits like a shoe, or fits like an article of clothing, or fits like a wedding ring. We are to live our life in such a way that it balances, that he equals out, it reflects the great weight 
of the salvation and the goodness of Jesus and the Father by which we've been saved. Paul says that our manner of life should balance or square with the gospel. But this manner of life that Paul alludes to is another great word. Um, it's, it's an interesting word. It's not achievement. It's not about you rising to the level of something. It's actually a blessing word. Um, it's a word that the people in Philippi would have been familiar with. And the word is palituesta. And it means to live as a citizen. This word Paul selected specifically for the Philippians because many of them were Roman citizens. They enjoyed an incredible privilege among their compatriots in Macedonia. Uh, They were a Roman colony, Philippi was. They were a bit of Rome outside of Italy. And as such, they enjoyed all of those Roman privileges. They, They lived with enviable benefits. And though Paul's not pointing them to their Roman citizenship, he's pointing them to their citizenship in the kingdom of God. And they are ruled by another Lord, another emperor, another king of kings and lord of lords. And it's not the emperor Caesar. It is Jesus Christ. Live in a manner, live as citizens such that you reflect the Lord's glory. Paul is going to take them Uh, He's going to take this up specifically as to what this manner of life looks like when he's going to talk in chapter 2 of something that's called the Carmen Christi. He's going to lay out this long song of Christ in chapter 2. And that is the life, right, that's on the other end of the balance scale um, by which the worthiness, right, is being measured or weighed. But before we get started, right, of laying this foundation of a confident life, Paul wants us to be sure that we're all looking at the same thing, at the same one, so that we together might be able to balance our life with his and individually might balance our life with his. If we're not looking at the same one, we're going to find ourselves confused about what's going to make living worth it. Is it going to be prestige is that what's going to make your life worth it? Is it going to be getting, gaining honor from other people that's going to make your life worth it? Paul didn't find those things coming easily. Right? Even among the churches that he planted, he didn't find those things coming easily. Wealth and prosperity? Paul worked to support himself, even as he ministered. And though he had the right to ask or to expect payment from the churches in which he planted and oversaw, his congregations to support him, he didn't, right? Was it his physical well-being and health? No, you know, neither of those were Paul's. If we are in this, right, the Christian life, for honor and the appreciation that we get from others, rather than put into it, right? We're going to find ourselves in a joyless place, placing our confidence in something that is ultimately going to crush us. Right? Worthy, right? What are you looking at? To whom are you looking? Secondly, Paul tells the Philippians, he lets the Philippians know what it is that for Paul is going to make it worth it, all of what it is that he is suffering and going through, what's going to make it worth it? 
Now, the question is, is it going to be his vindication? Is being able to go back to Philippi? Well, no, it's not that. Um, is it going to be people coming to see who he is and really expressing their appreciation and apologizing to him? Those people who have betrayed him or lied about him or spoken against him, that they be put in their place? Is that what he's looking for in this life? No. Paul says in verses 27 and 28, whether I come and see you or am absent, or am absent right, this is going to make it worth it that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. And he gives them a list, right? In that he gives them a list of things that's going to make his suffering worth it. One, that they be living in a manner worthy of the gospel regardless of whether one is looking or not, whether I'm absent or present, that you're living this way. Right? It, it's not a test of personal... The test of personal transformation is whether or not you are who you are or who you're becoming when no one is looking. Right? That's, that's the evidence of change. That you're not doing what you're doing to impress other people so that they see you. you. You are who you are when nobody else is around. Right? This, this is why church life is difficult. Um, but it's the meaning of sincerity and integrity. Right? To be who you are inside and out the same thing. Um, the leader of the C.S. Lewis literary estate was a UNC grad from Reedsville, North Carolina. Isn't that surprising? Walter Hooper said of C.S. Lewis, he knew him briefly at the end, toward the end of C.S. Lewis's life, he says of him that he was the most thoroughly converted person he had ever met. What would that be like to be thoroughly converted, right? To, to live a life consistent with that worthiness, right? To, uh, to be that person, right? Christ-like, um, not just on Sunday morning, but on Monday night. So that, that's the first, right? Is that whether he is, comes to them or is he is absent, right? That they're who they are. That would, that would bring Paul joy. Secondly, Paul would be greatly comforted by their standing firm in one spirit, that is, living by and in and through the same life. This, this speaks of their disposition and heart. They are reliant on one another. They're confident in one another. They're embraced by one another. This unity. And, and three, with one mind. And this word translated mind, it, it speaks of something that might be akin to what we understand as being soulmates, right? Their unity and fervor, as well as their unity in life, they're together. Right? You know a person that you would call a soulmate, right? That's what he's hoping, that's what he's praying for, that's what he wants for the Philippians. They'd be of one mind, they'd be united together in their life. Fourthly, that they're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That they're working together, they're united in this common co-mission 
of the faith of the gospel. They're not facing off or squaring off against one another, but they're standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, working alongside one another in life, trusting and obeying Jesus, following him where he goes. And then lastly, he desires that they be not frightened by anything in their, you know, by their opponents. That is, confident in their disposition, in their full awareness of the worth of the gospel and living in light of it, that they're comforted and inspired and encouraged by their unity of life together and their purpose together, that they not be afraid, especially by those who oppose them. Right? If Paul comes to Philippi and is able to see them, right, he will be no less encouraged and strengthened by their witness if he merely hears about it. That's what he wants for them. How they are living together, especially if they are living this way in the midst of adversity and difficulty and suffering. And friends, that's the test, isn't it? It becomes difficult for us because we don't know how to read the adversity that has come to us, the difficulties. We don't know how to understand what suffering means. And Paul addresses that question, right? And he, he is like, what does this suffering and this difficulty, this adversity mean? He says that those things are a clear sign. A clear sign. Right, the confidence, the confidence by which we see uh, and understand these things theoretically, what, what I'm going to say to you, we're, gonna, we're talking about this in a theoretical and an abstract way in some ways. Um, it can be a thing that we set ourselves up with or wound others with. Right, Paul's going to give them a right answer. We're being given right answers. But if, if it were something that were easy, Paul wouldn't take time to articulate it in a letter and to have to work it out with them, right? So confidence in the midst of suffering is very difficult. And right answers that are used clumsily, you know, on those, even if you're trying to help them, Right answers that are used clumsily on those who are suffering can cause them to suffer more. It can become a cudgel, a cudgel, a club. Right? The suffering, Paul says, on account of Christ is a clear sign to you. What? That you will be saved. Now, that's easily said. It is much more difficult for it to be received to be lived, and to believe. Because it comes with a cost. Paul says it's a clear sign. For those in the midst of suffering, it may seem that their suffering is a clear sign of something exactly the opposite. And thank the Lord we have books like the book of Ruth, where Naomi believes that the suffering she has undergone is because her advocate, the Lord, has turned against her and is testifying against her. Or I'm thankful that we have a book like Job, right? 
that they feel like these two characters, especially in the scriptures, these two people, they, they have this experience of asking this question, what is this a clear sign of? Well, it must be nothing good. Right? You can understand how a person would think that, that their suffering um, is a clear sign of something other than your being saved. Pain and difficulty and discouragement and disease are not blessings. And it's very difficult for us to unlearn and to reorient our heart to trust in the Lord. But Paul says it's a clear sign. And a clear sign of what? Of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. The world and those of the world cannot respond to difficulty with the same confidence and integrity. But we have the firm foundation of Jesus and his word. Right? You have put those words into practice. Right? Living your life as if the meek will inherit the earth, living your life as if it is the poor in spirit who will be blessed, living your life that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled is terrifyingly foolish according to the world. It is ridiculous, right? But you are saying that salvation comes with those things and through those things, through the one who embodies all of those virtues. Your salvation is not something that you've worked by manipulating your circumstances or by being lucky. Your salvation comes from the only one who can save. And the one who saves the helpless. Right? Your salvation can't be taken away by any power or authority, disease or circumstance or stretch of bad luck or disapproval because your salvation comes from God. He holds the title indeed. The Lord Jesus has purchased you and your salvation. He holds it safe for you. It cannot spoil, rust, or perish. It's kept like you are in, in, a, in a, a real measure, kept safe in heaven for you, by him, for you, right? He holds title indeed. Your citizenship is with him. He is the one who is ruling and reigning and gets to say. So Paul says, do not be alarmed by those people who oppose you. What can man do to you? Right? Don't be alarmed by your failing. What, what did you bring to your salvation other than your failures, other than your sins? Right? Suffering and persecution are not the precursor to your destruction. They are actually the test that exposes the reality of the salvation underneath. Right? You can... Tests are two, you have tests for two reasons. You have tests to expose what you don't know, but you also have tests to expose what you know. And it is only in the test that you get to see the difference. It, it, it's not some agent of misfortune or the enemy, the devil who's tricked God and Slipped out, who's you know slipped out and is now working to 
unwork what Jesus has accomplished. That's not what you're going through in suffering. The devil may be a prowling lion, but he will be in, in some measure, has already been ensnared in his own devices. God is so powerful that he can make death bear fruit to eternal life. So even your own death becomes the doorway by which you pass into eternal life. God is the one who wills and works and is and in Jesus, right, we see that great, glorious, loving compassion. Paul says, think of your suffering this way. You've been given faith. The persecution that you experience is because of your faith, because you are trusting. With believing comes suffering. Right? What, what suffering is there if you've trusted, if you don't continue in trusting him in the midst of your suffering? What, what suffering is there if you turn from God and don't believe in him and then turn and rely on your, on your own self? And consequently, right, if, there's no, if there is no God, there's no moral absolute or eternal goodness, um, that nothing stands above all things is truth, right? If we are merely just animals who are walking around with self-awareness but no significance, no meaning, no ultimate purpose, what does the suffering matter? It's because you do believe that the hardships you see and the experiences that, that cause suffering, right? Because you do believe and are trusting and are trying to understand how those two things come together. That's a part of that suffering. And Jesus suffered the same way. When he cries out the words, you know, of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same cry. One thing that I know about suffering is that there is nothing like it to produce perseverance. No amount of good fortune or an easy life can produce the character which faith in suffering can produce. Right? As a consequence, um, if life is easy and if there is a life that is absent of suffering, you know, from good thing to good thing, um, I oftentimes find, it certainly was true for me, that there is no compassion for others in their weakness and in their suffering. Right? There, there's no patience with them in the midst of it. There's no holding on and holding out. And, and another way to think about it is that in, unless they're suffering, there can't be comfort. You can't comfort the comfortable, can you? And suffering, right, we have this opportunity to do what Paul is going to write um, to the Colossians, which he writes about the same time, about filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Like, hear that. Paul says, right, to the Colossians that they are filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. That just sounds contradictory in some way. I don't understand, you know, how could Christ's sufferings be lacking? Well, in this one way, Jesus Christ's love for his people surpassed his body's ability to endure the suffering, the lengths to which he was willing to go for his people. 
His body gave out, but his love did not stop. And we share together in the ways in which Christ is persecuted and suffering, right? We, as we suffer, we fill up in our demonstration of our suffering, right, to, to show how much the love of God is. That's why, you, that's why you go to East Africa, right? That's why you support people who go to East Africa. That's, that's why you just, you get up in the morning and love others When we suffer on account of Christ, we share in his suffering for his people and we add to that great demonstration of love. And when we suffer the way that Jesus suffered, suffering for him, with him, in like manner, we're all sharing together in that suffering. It is for the same love. And as we continue in faith, trusting and forgiving and loving and bearing patiently and speaking the truth and standing firm holding fast, we all suffer together. Right? Paul is trying to help the Philippians see the worth of the life which is transformed by faith, by love, and by hope in Jesus Christ. And next week, Paul's going to focus our eyes on the worthiness of Jesus, and we're going to see more clearly the weight of his glory.